Today on the Doc on the Run podcast, we're talking with Jonathan Levitt about the strategies he uses to recover quickly after hard training blocks or an ultra before resuming his training. So the big question is this, how are runners like us who don't like hearing doctors say, just stop running, who know that we simply have to stay active, how do we heal in a way that lets us stay strong, maintain our running fitness, and keep preparing for the next race, and still heal without making the injury worse? Well, that is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Dr. Christopher Segler, and welcome to the Doc on the Run podcast. I'm sure most of you listening already know who he is. You know, Jonathan is the host of the podcast for the long run. And fortunately for all of us, he's taking time out of his schedule, recording his podcast to flip the mic and talk about his experiences here and provide his insights on rapid recovery for ultra runners because that's kind of his gig. Um, and so uh, we'll have all the links for you uh, about his show and all that in the show notes at DocOnTheRun.com under the podcast tab. But you definitely need to check out his show and start listening to it if you're not uh, already. You're going to love it for sure. So, Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show today. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. So, listen, before we get started, um, you know, talking about these specific things around recovery and ultras and, and all of your experience, I was hoping maybe you could just give everybody a little background on you know, your running history, why you got interested in ultras specifically yeah. and, and all that. So I started running um, almost exactly seven years ago now. Um, and I know that because uh, it was the day after the Boston Marathon bombings. Oh. And uh, I had been casually running, you know, like two to five miles, maybe four miles was, you know, my long run. And for whatever reason, the day after, so I lived, I lived in Boston and, uh, you know, grew up big Boston fan. And for whatever reason, I felt like the right thing to do the day after the bombing was go for a run. So I drove, uh, I drove to Newton. I didn't know that where I parked was uh, the top of Heartbreak Hill. And I ran in the direction that I thought was Boston <laughs> and uh, what I thought was the course. And I ended up running almost to the finish line. I made it to the turn uh, onto Hereford uh, that second to last turn before a massive uh, police presence told me I needed to turn around. Um, big machine guns and everything. And so I turned around and I ran back. And that was my first half marathon. And <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about stress fractures before we, uh, before we started recording. Um, it was my first half marathon and my first stress fracture. Um, <laughs> I went zero to 60 and, uh, and paid the price for it, but I was hooked um, by mile 10. That was the longest I'd ever run in my life. And uh, I got that runner's high immediately. And I got what I needed out of that experience. I got that connection to Boston. I was wearing blue and yellow. And um, I felt very, uh, very connected in a time when nobody knew what was going on, you know, much like right now. Yeah. Um, and that was so once i recovered from that that was the start of of my my running career uh you could say and it slowly evolved over time um i was working for a company that uh had a sports nutrition product and our customers were marathoners i had never run a marathon i figured if i'm going to be answering questions about how to use this product <laughs> marathoners i should probably run a marathon so the first race I signed up for was a marathon. I ran a half marathon in training that spring. Um, this was the following year. And uh, I ran two hours in that unofficial half marathon. And then I ran 135 in my first official half. So I felt pretty good about that. 
Um, <laughs> and then uh, about two months later, I ran my first marathon. Um, and then the, the evolution to ultras, um, in the role that I'm in now at Inside Tracker, I work with a lot of ultra endurance athletes who seem to sort of gravitate to what we do. And it just became normal in my circle of friends to like run 50 miles or run a hundred miles. Right. And, um, and I just really love the pursuit of progress and, uh, getting better. And I like to call it like leveling up over time. Mm-hmm. And I needed something different. I was sort of getting burnt out on the marathon. I had run five at that point, but I was really set on breaking three and I got a little obsessive with splits and paces and workouts and never missing runs and, you know, doing all the things that I know now, you know, aren't the way to achieve progress. Um, and so I switched to the trails and um, signed up for 50K. Didn't happen. Right. <laughs> we'll talk about that. <laughs> um, signed up for another 50K. Uh, it almost didn't happen or it actually didn't happen. Um, <laughs> I fell and got injured in in that race. So I've never actually finished a 50K race, but uh, I've run the distance. And uh, last fall, I did rim to rim to rim in the nice. Grand Canyon. So, so that was like 43 miles, yeah. 13 hours. And that was the most incredible thing I've ever done. Wow. That's awesome. So I'll tell you, of, you may think this is funny, but I'll tell you a story about the rim to rim thing. I, um, I, when I turned 50, um, I had this plan for some reason, I don't know why I thought this was a good idea, but I had, you know, I talked to, I work with lots of endurance runners, athletes of all kinds. And, and I'm usually asking patients that I see like, well, what is your favorite thing you've ever done? And I've actually had more than one say rim to rim to rim, unbelievable experience. And I don't know why, but I just had this horrible idea where, um, I was seeing this guy who, you know, he had an injury, he was an ultra runner, but I kind of knew him. And, and, uh, I said, Hey, you know, I'm going to turn 50 this year. I was thinking it might be cool to do like the rim to rim to rim, but then tack on a few miles at the end. So I run 50 miles total. <laughs> and, and he was, I was like, you, would you think about doing that? And he was like, I already did. Uh, let's do it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, great. But then long story short, I was super busy. Um, and I did not get his emails leading up to that. He had planned the entire thing. Of course, I didn't know that I didn't hear from him. Uh, and I went and, um, and my birthday is in June. That's not exactly the ideal time to do that run. Um, but I thought, so what, you know, um, and I called him literally like two or three days before we're supposed to go. And he was like, uh, Hey man, uh, are you still thinking we're doing this? And I was like, well, yeah, of course. What do you mean? And he's like, well, I, I, like I read, I emailed you and I didn't hear from you like two months ago. So I just assumed we weren't doing it. So I canceled all the reservations and everything. Uh-oh. So then I was like, okay, well, I'll just do it by myself. But you know, he was the one that actually knew the Grand Canyon. And so yeah. I was like, you know, was getting a, a headlamp and, you know, like a really bright one, like brighter than one I normally run with. Cause I, you know, I was going to have to start super late at night. And then like, I'm not making this up. I came home from buying the headlamp and I turned on the television and the television was on the, like national geographic channel and it was a documentary about the grand canyon and the and so they like not making this up i turned on the tv and there was a picture of a huge raft like flipping over in the river (laughs) all the people getting thrown out and it said every year you know so many people die 
you know, like 12 people die each year or something on the Colorado River or whatever the statistic was. And then it says, and it pans to the wall where you can see the trail coming down like into the canyon and there's a, you know, just lines of hikers on it. And it said, but this pales in comparison to the <laughs> number of deaths of hikers each year just due to the heat in the bottom of the canyon. And then I was suddenly like, wait a minute. So I'm going to be running by myself with a headlamp I've never used fast downhill on a trail that's really dangerous in the dark to try to beat the mules and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, this seems like a terrible, terrible plan. <laughs> you know, so I actually ended up doing a, a different thing, a, an actual organized 50 miler that year. But I almost went to do it, but that I probably wouldn't be doing this, uh, you know, episode right now. <laughs> I'd actually been <laughs> foolish enough to carry through with it. Uh, so what was funny. that thing right like for you? I mean, was it really amazing doing the rim to rim? Uh, yeah, it, it was cool. I mean, I'm afraid of heights and I don't like running in the dark. And we started... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, so I I had been in the canyon before and I went in July of 2016. You think June is bad? July was it oh, was yeah. awful. So we we did like a 10-mile hike and we saw people throwing up and we saw people like really uh, unprepared. Um mm -hmm. people that were throwing up we asked them if they had electrolytes and they're like what are electrolytes? <laughs> you guys are screwed. Here, eat this. Um so I must have blocked that out with, with how steep it was because mm -hmm. I, we went for a, a little walk on Friday and I was like, holy shit, what have I, what have I done? Right. Um, so we start the next day at 5 a.m. to beat the mules, uh, like you said, and um, I separated from the group immediately because I was like walking 20 minute, like run shuffling 20 minute miles because I'm terrified of heights and if you blow a turn, you're literally dead, but right. not immediately. Like, <laughs> like 15 seconds later, 30 seconds later, you're dead. Um, so, so I spent the first six and a half miles totally solo wow. and in the dark um, going downhill. And so safe to say that sunrise was the best sunrise I've ever experienced, not only because it was gorgeous and I was in the red rock at the time and it was just like lighting up the place, but I was like, the worst of it is over. Like this is my fear and it's gone and it's b literally behind me. So I meet up with my group at, um, at Phantom Ranch, which is like seven miles in, seven and a half miles in. So the campground, this and that. And I was like, oh, you guys been here a while? <laughs> They're like, uh, yeah, they had been there waiting for me for like 25 minutes. So they put 25 minutes on me in, in six miles. So anyway, um, ran with a friend the rest of the way across the canyon, uh, pretty much the same, the same person. Um, you know, we had a great conversation and then the, the climb out was pretty cool. Um, you get up to above 8,000 feet. And so on the South side, you start around seven. So it's a little cooler. Um, and you get a nice breeze and you look behind and it's just, you're just like, Whoa, look at where I've come from. Right. Um, and um, the longest I had ever been on my feet prior to that was uh, a 50k, and it took me about seven hours. So we hit the the north side in 715, um, which was the longest duration I'd ever been on my feet by seven minutes. And then to think that we needed to turn around and do that again, <laughs> you know, you've already gone almost the marathon distance, right. and I've already hit my longest time on feet, and it was just like. 
it was one of those things that like you live you live for that moment like right. what's next i i don't know what's coming next like this could get pretty weird right. <laughs> and so we we um we had a we had a crew meet us uh on the north side and some people just did south to north uh, logistically it's easier if you do rim to rim to rim versus just rim to rim because it's a six hour drive mm-hmm. um and so we you know played around in the parking lot for 30 minutes, ate a lot of food and then decided, all right, let's, let's get on with it. So we started like rolling down the hill or down the, the North side, um, pretty quickly. And it was a really fun descent. I love descending and I love like smooth single track descents and the North, the North rim was much safer than the South rim in most places. Um, and so we hit the 50k and i'm running with my friend tony who organized the thing we had about 15 of us but i ran almost the entire way back with him and we're we're just like this is like this is flow like i i feel so good right now and we hit mile 33 and we're rolling like low sevens and still it's like it's like down uh, like a two or three percent downhill grade so it's it's very generous and i remember taking a video just like on cloud nine saying this is the best i've ever felt like i've trained i trained for this i trained for this moment and i saved it with the intent of sending it to my coach and oh. i did and then 10 miles later was the complete opposite it was the absolute worst i've ever felt physically in my life and probably mentally and in between that was the six and a half mile climb that is just relentless because you're climbing 5,000 feet mm-hmm. in, one, in one go. Yeah. And I had stopped enjoying consuming gels around hour 10. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we still had, uh, it ended up being three more hours. So I was like, I can't not eat at this point. Right. I knew we had at least two hours left. We slowed down dramatically at the end. And so I was like, I got to just keep it. So I kept eating, kept eating. And it's, it's times like that when you, when you learn like what you're made of, when you don't really have an option, um, you just have to keep going. And that's what we did. And then the sunset as we were climbing out and to turn around and see what we had just accomplished, it wasn't, you know, this long windy road where you can't see the, the, you know, what you've come from, you could literally see the other side and right. you could see how far away it was. And it was just like this, mo- the most incredible feeling to, to accomplish that and then sit down on a bench. Yeah. <laughs> be done. Yeah. No, that's great. I mean, that's really, it. it's really, it's making it through that adversity. Right. And, uh, and I think I saw this in some climbing book many, many years ago, but it basically said, you know, every adventure begins with, a terrible decision. Yeah. And uh, in those moments, like, you know, where whatever, you know, you don't take electrolytes or you don't bring enough gels or you don't realize it's going to be as hot or something. There's always some time that some kind of adversity can come up and sometimes it's unavailable. Sometimes we don't have anything to do with it. Um, You know, sometimes it's an injury. Sometimes it's a thing like what's going on right now. And right now there's a lot of uncertainty with athletes and training and, uh, a lot of people are having trouble getting to starting line because there is no starting line. All the races have been canceled. And, uh, you know, I've had the same thing. I know one of yours was canceled. I've, I've had other races that are canceled. Um, once, uh, 
it was canceled the, the morning of the race, like one of the ultras in Marin County, oh, wow. um, which I didn't actually go because it was really smoky. Um, but then Ironman Lake Tahoe, they literally canceled that race when we were all standing on the beach in our wetsuits waiting for the start. Wow. That was really demoralizing. I got a letdown. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, we've all been there for days and then they're like, okay, the health department said we can't do it because of the smoke, you know, which of course everybody had been there was like, I can't believe they're going to do this. This is crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But right now at least people are, I mean, you can consider it good or bad. Uh, I mean, if you now have a race that's been either postponed or canceled, at least you didn't like waste the airfare and the hotel and all that kind of stuff. You can kind of regroup, but it's not easy. So no matter what the circumstances, when there's a change of plans, it really is disheartening because with all of these things you're talking about, you have to put so much effort into that preparation. And I know, so your first 50 K was the North face, right? Yep. And it was canceled. So no one wants to have a change at the last minute, but you actually were fortunate, I guess, in that you were able to switch that. And then you did something, you went and signed up for a completely different race, but how, how did that actually go down? So, um, yeah, so that was supposed to be my first 50 K and I have this like weird relationship with that race in particular. So the year prior, I didn't sign, uh, I was going to do it, but I ended up injured in the summer and I couldn't, I didn't have enough base miles to sign up for it. Then the second time uh, it was canceled due to the wildfires. Yeah. And so what I ended up doing, I got a text from a friend um on that tuesday the race was maybe it was monday the race was officially canceled i think on tuesday but the day before my friend tristan who um uh, so her dad has a place out in tahoe and so she texted and was like hey um she texted me and my friend who had been training together my friend jenny was running her first marathon and she texted us and was like hey do you guys want to come to tahoe and you can run your you know, run your distance and, and on my favorite trails. And I was like, yes, sign me up. Uh, I don't, I don't know anything about, you know, doing this, but so fast forward. So, so we sent out a couple of tweets, a couple of Instagrams to see if people would be interested in joining us. It essentially turned into this like fat ass 50 K. <laughs> um, and f- yeah, so fast forward, like, two days and North Face has pledged to match all of our fundraising efforts. Um, they donated all of the fuel from the race. They donated all the shirts wow. and Devin Yanko, who's a professional trail runner was basically running point on um, like logistics uh, with my friend Tristan. So the two of them basically did all the planning. I was the hype man and just connected people. So North Face put out a call to their athletes, their athletes all promoted it. And then a whole bunch of my friends promoted it too. Long story short, we raised $10,000. North Face doubled that. So we made a donation of $20,000. And this happened in two days. And so Saturday morning, we show up to the parking lot uh, at Donner Pass or uh, Donner Summit. And we pull into the parking lot. I'm like, what are all these people doing here? There were like 50 people for our, our run. Wow. Um, we, we had uh, Dylan Bowman. We had Ia Wang. We had you know, a star-studded cast of professional ultra runners with Devin running the aid stations. 
And it was just incredible. Um, and it kept me distracted from the fact that like I had a really long run ahead that day. Yeah. And it didn't actually hit me until we started moving what I was about to do. Yeah. Um, so Donner Summit is 7,200 feet. I live at in a fourth floor apartment at sea level. So you know, the <laughs> highest point in my run is when I leave my fourth floor apartment. Right. Um, so that was a challenge, but it was really reassuring because we had all these professionals out on the course and Devin was literally in my back pocket. And if I needed something, if something went wrong, you know, she's done everything. Right. And we got lost at one point and called her up and she fixed the problem immediately and laughed at us and told us we were idiots because we were, we missed a turn. Um, but it was basically like running a 10 K to a buffet and then having Devin kick us out and then running another 10 K and then doing that five times. And I ran the whole thing with the same four people and I got to experience Jenny's first, first marathon, essentially 25 miles of it. Um, and that finished in the parking lot. And then we went up to two more peaks um, with my friend, Brian. And at mile 29, Brian looked at me and said, John, I've got a problem. I was like, what? He goes, I can't stop smiling. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, man, that's awesome. And and we get up to we get up to mile 30 or 29 and a half or whatever. And and it's the it's I forget the name of the peak, Jefferson, whatever it was. And it's overlooking Donner Lake at eighty seven hundred feet or eighty five hundred feet. And it's just the most incredible feeling that I had ever had to that point. Like I had run 30 miles at that point and we were on top of Lake Tahoe essentially. And it was just so cool. And then we came down and there's this photo of me with this grin on my face that stuck around for like three days. <laughs> and I couldn't stop smiling as I ran into that parking lot. People were making so much noise and it was, I felt good for 90% of the day. And it was the best, it was the best feeling to just see everyone come together. Everyone was so supportive. Um, every, most people knew it was my first 50K surrounded by like really accomplished trail runners um, who, you know, some of them just did a you know, 20 mile long run, 25 mile long run or whatever. Um, but it was just incredible. Uh, and that was, you know, I fell in love with the, um, the ultra world on that day. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, that's, I mean, obviously that was very, very fortunate, right? So you were able to take what was a terrible, terrible circumstance, your race being canceled and immediately like it just like literally 48 hours, like you said, you yeah. turned it into this awesome thing and then you got to go do it and you didn't really have to lose any of your fitness. And so I would imagine in some respects, because you had this new thing develop right before you just kind of like almost like this snowball um, you know, sort of self-empowering and picking up speed and you're watching the whole thing. You didn't really even have time to have anxiety or, you know, get depressed about it or whatever. You just immediately were in a different thing, but yeah. then you had this awesome thing. And for anybody to say that they did a, a 50 K or anything else where you're running at, you know, altitude, um, when you're not really trained for altitude and yet enjoy it 90% of the time that you have to have a couple of things happen. One of them, for the most part, the day has to go relatively well without you falling into some, you know, pain cave. 
And in order for that to not happen, you have to be in pretty good shape. And so obviously your training went pretty well and you're able to maximize all your training before that day, or you just wouldn't enjoy it that much. And right. I mean, I've, you know, I've done lots of different kinds of events and stuff and I won't bore you the backstory, but basically more or less on a dare and to prove to my sister that anybody could do an Ironman because an event that long is mostly mental. Um, I basically said, okay, well, I'll make a deal with you. If you'll just stop worrying about your race, I know you can do it. I believe you can do it. I'll prove that I can do it without any training. <laughs> and so I was, when I had this discussion with her, I was literally packing up my bike in her living room after I've just finished Ironman Texas. And I said, I will not ride my bike at all. I will not run at all. I will not swim, go to the gym or work out in any capacity for the next like four or five months, whatever it was until I get to Ironman Lake Tahoe. And I will do it with zero training to prove to you that it's all mental. Now that I will say, I did not enjoy that day very much. Like I did it, but it was ridiculously painful. Um, but it also sort of speaks to the fact that like with endurance running, it's more about making good decisions and not doing something stupid to just be able to survive the day. But there's no question with all endurance sports, if you're in really good shape and you've really trained and you've really recovered from all of those workouts, your day is going to be infinitely more enjoyable. And sure. that's not really a secret, right? Like I uh, was talking to Lucy Bartholomew recently and she was sort of talking about, she referred to her, to it some way. She said her coach or somebody says that you have to think of sleep as your second workout of the day that, you know, you go do a workout where you do damage. We call that training and fun. And then you go sleep and you let the tissue actually heal and you become stronger. And so I'm curious, like, you know, with all the training that you do, what do you think about sleep in terms of your own personal recovery routine? Do you really protect it? Do you think about it or you just like sleep till you feel comfortable? What do you do? Yeah. So, um, so that's funny that Lucy said that, uh, we have the same coach and he is very, um, very, uh, suggestive of you know sleeping as much as possible right. so i do that that's the cornerstone of everything uh I, like you said i protect it and that's priority one um i i mean prior to all of what's going on right now i travel i traveled a lot and you get that reminder of put your own mask on first before helping <laughs> those around you right. and so i view sleep as putting my own mask on first before helping those around me yeah. and it is fundamentally what I base the rest of my life around mm -hmm. because if I can't wake up feeling good, I can't do anything else. Well, right. Um, so I am in a, I mean, we're all now in a flexible work environment, but prior to this, I had the flexibility to come in to the office after eight hours of sleep and or eight and a half or nine, um, partially because I can run commute. So, you know, that mm -hmm. saves 30 to, 60 minutes on a daily basis. But um, I really, yeah, like you said, I like the way you put, put it, protect that. And I, you know, eight hours is, is pretty much the minimum. And I feel that that's, that allows me to do my job better. It allows me to, to run better. It allows me to be a better friend, family member, right. all of that right. uh, fundamentally is, is better because I feel good. Yeah. Um, and so I had a conversation on my podcast and I was talking about, um, I forget what I was saying, but I was like, yeah, maybe it's selfish, but this is what I do. And she reframed it. She was like, it's not selfish. That's self care. Yeah. That's, that's putting yourself first so that you can be useful and helpful to other people and not just, you know, a, a, a large paperweight. 
um, yeah. that takes up space. And so, yeah, so I, and I think that, um, or I know that sleep has a huge impact on rest and recovery. I literally can quantify it. I do blood testing and can see, you know, when I'm, when I'm sleeping more, my testosterone is higher and my cortisol is lower. So functionally, um, I feel better. And then quantitatively, I can see that I'm better. Right. Yeah, these are really important things, right? And uh, it is, it's interesting because the stuff that I think we as athletes gravitate toward is the suffering, right? The sort of like, you know, the mythology behind it, you know, you know, running like the first marathon, you know, deliver a message, the guy drops dead, yeah. after delivering the message, you know, that sort of stuff. It's all glorified. And, um, and, you know, and we certainly like to tell these stories about how bad we had to suffer during some event to actually finish. And, it's fun to be able to overcome those things, but that's not really how you get stronger. You do get stronger from sleeping and from nutrition because you have to sleep and let the process happen. But at the same time, you have to get the proper building blocks in and you, you know, if you eat a really healthy diet and what's appropriate for you, then obviously you're going to recover faster and rebuild the tissue faster, which allows you to work out more without getting an overtraining injury because every overtraining injury, everybody I treat, whether it's a, you know, a webcam consult or a phone call or a, an in-person visit or whatever, every overtraining injury is nothing more than too much stress applied to one particular piece of tissue before the next workout that applies stress to that piece of tissue. It's really that simple. It's not running. Running's not the problem. It's the recovery or lack thereof, you know, that you have on your schedule with your training that is really the problem. And so what about some of your nutritional habits? You know, how do you think your diet's changed since that first run in Boston where you did your first, you know, unofficial half marathon with zero training and got a stress fracture to where you are now where, you know, you're really like, you know, a solid, like accomplished ultra runner. Like what has changed from that first day in Boston to now, do you think? So the biggest fundamental change is I eat more. Um, I think that uh, under nourishing or under fueling is uh, a huge problem for a lot of people, men and women, and I think that most people don't know that they're doing it, and it's not intentional for many people. Right. Um, and I wasn't doing it intentionally, but I had a conversation with a dietitian, and she said, uh, "This was probably three years ago now." And she's like, "You need 500 calories more every day." Yeah. And so that's 3,500 calories a a week that I was under fueling, right. and that's like more than a day's worth of nutrition. Mm -hmm. and I kept having these bone issues and I kept having, uh, I was having energy issues and sleep issues and I just wasn't recovering. I wasn't progressing and it's not rocket science. It's like <laughs> very straightforward. Uh, right. The other piece is, is the uh, supplementation. I mean, I've, yeah. I've honed that in. I know exactly what I need um, and I take it and I take it on a regular basis and it does the job. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that is finding the, the particular supplements that work. Um, my magnesium was low. I was taking magnesium supplement and it didn't work. Uh, so I kept trying new magnesium supplements and it wasn't until I found the one I'm using now that my magnesium actually improved. Right. Uh, so sleep is improved with that. Muscle repairs improved with that. Mood, cognition, all that stuff just from improving your magnesium levels. Um, so stuff like that, um, you know, nailing the basics, eating, you know, I eat fish twice a week. It's a good excuse for sushi. Um, you know, 
simply just eating more is really the fundamental change for me. But then also um, drilling into some of the personalized aspects of it has helped a lot. Yeah. You know, I, um, uh, I think a lot of athletes when they, you know, get a base level understanding of this idea, okay, you need to sleep, you need to eat, you need to get in all the nutrients, you need to have all the bases covered and so on. A lot of us do that. But when you're really in high volume training, you can still fall into a deficit. I know I did this myself. Like I don't have any data on it. I can't tell you what was missing or how bad it was. But um, I had a period where I was really in very high volume training for several years in a row. And I know that I hovered somewhere between four and 6% body fat during that period. And I had friends that actually had asked me like, man, you've been sick. Like, you know, I looked so thin and I really was. But at the same time, I had this really, really high level of fitness. And so like, I felt like I was fine. But again, I wasn't tracking anything. I didn't have any kind of data. And, you know, like we've already discussed, you know, to, to really maximize all your workouts, to really get as strong and as fast as you want to be and as you physiologically can be, you have to have a solid nutritional plan and the right building blocks going into your system. And if you want to rebuild tissue and resume training and recover as quickly as possible, then you have to manage those things really carefully. Um, you know, since the beginning of time, uh, when it comes to like training workouts, uh, athletic fitness, and determining what we're supposed to eat, what we need to eat, what we really need to eat to optimize our own bodies, our own physiologic capacity for healing tissue and reach our own goals and so on, most of that really, even though we put all these like food pyramids and all these different strategies over time, it's really all guesswork. You should eat what you need, you know, is basically what it boils down to. And nobody has known historically. And there's a, I don't remember who it was, but there was this thing about a guy who ran the Boston Marathon. I think it was, I mean, it was decades and decades ago. And he literally ate a cheeseburger on the sidewalk that his girlfriend handed him right before the race and he won the Boston marathon, you know, and like, there's nobody that would do that today. Um, so we at least know that's not a good idea. Well, but trail runners might. Trail runners, <laughs> might, trail, runners, trail runners might do that at an aid station, <laughs> yeah. through, you know, um, you know, but the truth is, is that if nutrition was really that simple of like, you should eat this kind of diet or this kind of like divisions of food, everybody would do it. If every overtraining injury had one solution, everybody would do it. And I wouldn't go lecture at medical conferences about running injuries. Everybody would know this is what you do. Just do it. Um, you know, and so like if you and I, for example, um, if we were going to do the same race and we basically were going to do the exact same training and ex eat the exact same thing, sleep the exact same amount, drink the same amount of water, theoretically, we would get the same results. But that's not at all how it works you know, because we different, we have different physiologic needs and all that. So um, I know that you have a lot of insight into this particular area in general, into how to get and track and monitor and realize what you really need that's missing. Like you said, in your case, magnesium. And, you know, again, some of this has to do with our own physiologic stuff and, and the food that we're putting into your bodies and the combination of all those things. So what can you tell us about, you know, your strategy with that, the company you work with and you know, how they're specifically using science and technology to deliver ultra personalized guidance on nutrition for athletes? Yeah, so that's a good, good question. And I like the way you framed it. The problem with nutrition is that everybody eats. And so everybody thinks they're an expert because they eat. Right. Um, whereas, you know, doctors go to uh, medical school, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't ask your friend's guidance on 
open heart surgery. <laughs> right. So why do we do that on nutrition? Why do we, why do we do that? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that question, but what I do know is how to personalize it. Yeah. So I work for a company called Inside Tracker. I've been there for five years, almost six years now. And our core mission is to help people make better decisions when it comes to their health. The company was founded with the goal of helping all humans improve health and longevity through a personalized approach. But when I joined, I said, great, athletes need this. We're an early company. Let's go find people who need us. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and we'll use it and we'll actually make the behavior changes necessary to, to improve and then do it again. So what we do is we take data and translate it into action. We feed our, our system with research studies and many variables on your demographic information, your training status, your, your um, food preferences, your food frequency, your supplement routine, where we've added genetic information, we're a few weeks away from adding wearable device information, so you're getting sleep and resting heart rate and activity data. And you merge all this together, and the output is take a vitamin D supplement right. or take a, you know, whatever, um, twice a week. Or, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's sitting right here. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the output is basically do this. Eat this food three times a week. Eat this food once a day. Uh, et cetera. Very specific based on who you are, what your needs are, and how you're hoping to achieve progress. So the idea is that we're going to tell something different to everybody. Mm-hmm. So we, many of us follow a personalized training program. Why would we not follow a personalized diet? Totally. Uh, and, and so to illustrate that, you know, some athletes will recommend they eat more meat, some athletes will suggest that they eat more plant-based and some athletes, um, you know, maybe they should try uh, an iron supplement instead of eating more meat. And it's just fascinating how the body works. Uh, my favorite example of this is an athlete named Kelly Henninger, who is a pro trail runner. And she came to us just as an average customer, actually. Um, she was trying to figure out why she was tired and why she didn't feel good. Mm-hmm. and her iron was low, and so she started playing around with supplements. She was taking a lot of supp- a lot of iron supplements, and it wasn't working. And in theory, you would think that if you do all of the right things with nutrient timing and supplementation and you know, not having it with coffee and not having it on a hard workout day and this and that and this and that, that you would improve, right? You take something that you think works, it should work. Well, it didn't because the human body is unique. So she decided she was plant-based at the time or vegetarian. And she decided, I'm going to try eating meat. So she tried eating meat. And she wrote a blog post for Goo, for Goo who is her sponsor. And Goo is sponsoring her to use our program. And their blog is titled, I ate a burger, felt amazing, and won some races. <laughs> and, and it wasn't that simple, right. but it, it almost was. Right. Um, she you know, started having a burger every Sunday and eating red meat a couple of times a week. And for her, that was what her body needed. And now she's feeling great and she's, you know, going to be one of the best trail runners out there. Um, and it's critical to figure out how to feel better and how to feel better. Um, and she was able to do it through, through the personalized approach and not sort of guest check and then thinking it worked 
yeah. with no way to validate that. Right. I mean, this is a big problem, right? Is that we see something that works for someone and we think it works. So I hear that from right. you and I think, well, I take magnesium, I'll do way better, you know? Um, and uh, a few years ago, I remember like I had patient after patient after patient. Hey, what do you think? Do you think I should do beet juice? Do you think that's what I really need? I'm like, I, you know, I mean, I, and I don't know. Maybe and, it depends. Maybe. Well, right. So, I mean, I did an interview with a, someone who's a, a successful Ironman triathlete who is a registered dietitian and coaches people on nutrition, right? But it's the same thing. It's like sort of experimenting, sort of trying, sort of trying all these things. And it still comes down to guesswork if you're just doing that. You know, and she was asking me about like what I put in my recovery smoothie. And I was telling her and she was kind of laughing. She's like, wow, you really have everything in there. I'm like, yeah, because I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm like trying to cover the bases. That's the best I could do. So you have a way, though, to actually quantify this. And I mean, I guess that would be your secret weapon, right? To really just, it's not complicated. You know, everybody has these secret weapon things that they think really help them like naps or acupuncture or massages or ice baths or whatever. You know, but in your case, you have something that's actually science-based and data-driven that is, you know, okay, this is what's actually missing, what, and, and then you can see a change, right? Because you can actually get some objective data as both input and output, you know, of what you really need, right? Which I guess really does make a difference. Yeah, so we work with um, a guy named Ben Bergeron, who's one of the best CrossFit coaches out there, and he has a, a saying, uh, do the common uncommonly well, yeah. and it's so simple. like we all eat yeah just do it do it better right. and not saying eat healthier foods or um you know nobody people don't like that word anymore right. it's it's all about eating the foods that are right for you we consider right. ourselves a diet killer there's no point in a diet because what works for one person doesn't work for all for some people eating vegan is great and that's the answer to all of their problems right. for other people eating a vegan diet will make them feel awful Mm -hmm. And same thing with paleo and same thing with keto and same thing with diet after diet after diet. And so we feel that, that our role is to cut through the clutter of all the fads and deliver you guidance of essentially keep doing what you're doing. Just make these changes, right. make these three changes or four changes. And so we feel from a sustainability standpoint, if we tell someone you're doing great, just do this differently it's much more sustainable than cut out all of this. Don't eat that. Uh, eat this breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And these are your snacks. And yeah. like, yeah, maybe that'll work for the elite of the elite or for the average person for two weeks. But the secret to success is consistency. That's yeah. true in training. That's true in nutrition. That's true in anything that you want to get better at. You just have to do it. And with nutrition, like, we work with tons of dietitians who follow the the model of, you know, a B plus 80% of the time is better than an A 10% of the time. Right. Yeah, and exactly. so instead of trying to be perfect, go for good, but go for good on a consistent basis versus yeah. perfect and then bad, perfect, right. bad, perfect, bad, because that won't work. Absolutely. And that'll make you feel bad. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I, a few months ago, I think I did a, I did a podcast episode. Basically, it was a very short kind of rant. And I think it was called uh, The Best Diet for Runners is Consistency. And, <laughs> you know, and it was literally talking about there was some study I read that they analyzed all of these different diets and did this huge meta-analysis. And what they found is the one thing that actually showed prolonged improvement in anyone, no matter what the measure was, 
was whether or not they actually stuck with the diet long term. And I mean, that's also not complicated, right? Just like you say, if you go run, you know, 13 miles and get a stress fraction, they don't run for two weeks, and then you go run again, you're never going to get fast. Uh, yeah. But if you can and just do things consistently, it's different. So I totally agree. So my 2019 was the best year of running it's, that I've ever had. I didn't do any of these blockbuster monumental workouts. I didn't do um, massive volume. I did big volume compared to what I was used to. But looking back on it, it was fascinating because I didn't have a race at the end of 2018 to exhaust myself and deplete oh, yeah. myself. I fun, fun run, fun ran a 50k and it took me seven hours. It's 1330 pace. Right. So I felt decent a couple days later, but there was no damaging and punishing race. So right. two weeks later, when I started running again, I felt fine. And then that next spring, I PR'd in the marathon by 20 minutes and finally broke, broke three. I almost said broke two. Wow. I finally broke three. So, um, and the only way that that happened was consistency. Yeah. You know, fast forward six, five months after that, and I'm running my, um, my 5K and 10K PR in workouts. And that doesn't happen overnight. That happens, yeah. you know, with, months and months and months and years of training right. and it took me probably two years or two and a half years of of dedicated training to get to that point so the point that i'm trying to make is that it is that consistency there is no secret and i learned that from my coach david who you were talking about before that he prescribes to the the trial of miles or the miles of yeah trials of miles and really the only way to be successful like you said at anything really is just doing it and yeah. doing it often. Right. Uh, that's great. I mean, that's good advice. And, um, you know, you have to have some strategy, right? You got to try to find the things that are missing. Like you said, inside tracker can help with some of those things. You've got to have a coach to tell you what you're doing in your workouts. That's wrong. What's missing, what you're doing too much of whatever, you know, sometimes it's the coach telling you don't do that run. You know, that right. is going to be too much for you. That's just going to make you sick or injured. Uh, but that's the big thing is it's about really maximizing your recovery after everything and making sure you're, you know, doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. And I think, you know, I'm really curious what your take is on this, but in terms of like after immediately after an event, you know, I think so much of us, like we plan for the event, we're like visualizing the finish line. We're doing all of this stuff to try to make it, you know, through some race at some specific goal time. And we don't even think about what's going to happen the second you cross the finish line. And it's interesting because I, um, I've done it myself. I've seen so many other athletes who really don't plan for that period right after the race. When really, as you just said, like in 2018, you didn't have a huge race that was punishing. But if you have a goal race that is punishing, stands to reason that your maximum focus on recovery would be immediately like 24 to 48 hours after that event. So what do you, you know, recommend to people after those kind of events for that immediate recovery period? So the answer is it depends. <laughs> And I say that with a caveat, but the reason I say that is I read a really interesting article and I can't remember who wrote it, but I know it was a dietitian who was asked that exact question. And her response was, if you have another race coming up, get something in immediately, like get carbs and protein in immediately. Um, if you don't, you can be a little looser with it. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I I would rather recover as fast as possible, no matter what. So I do that. So I use uh, Goo Energy's recovery 
uh, shake. And I'll have that, you know, within 10 minutes of crossing the finish line. And um, I think that the problem with a lot of races is like you can't get the food you want right away. So I use this as a way to get exactly what I want and control the controllables. And then I'll deal with, you know, if it's a burger, if it's pizza or if it's tacos or whatever, um, I'll figure it out afterwards. But I want to plan for the, the most critical portion and then I can deal with the, the additional variables in the future. Um, I mean, if there's a way to use, I love using Normatec post-race. If there's a way to do that, I'll do that. Um, and then, again, sleep is huge. Um, I, after running the marathon I ran last spring, I slept for like nine and a half hours for the next three nights. And I woke up on the fourth day. I was like, this is great. I've never felt this strong mm-hmm. post race and i i've taken as many as 21 days off of running post marathon and i took three days off and came back and felt fine um and and the blood data validated that that was uh objectively fine right um and yeah so so for me it's it's getting that recovery shake recovery mix in drinking some water and and then um and then, uh, you know, making sure, make sure I just have some fun afterwards. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, that's good advice for sure. So, you know, I've got, um, I guess one question for you sort of, you know, um, from the guests you've had on your show. So I know on, you know, your show the, for the long run, you've had lots of really interesting people and lots of different guests on the show that I would imagine have given you some really, really interesting, uh, thoughts and ideas uh, for you personally as a runner, something that either inspired you or changed the way you think about something. And if we think about all the guests you've had on the show, like what really comes to mind in terms of something that you've gotten from one of your guests on the show that's really affected you personally? So I had a conversation with uh, Ladia Albertson Junkins, and that really hit home for me. Um, Ladia is a good friend, uh, or was a good friend of Gabe Grunewald's and, um, really was, um, open about losing her best friend. Mm. Sorry. My dog is, uh, is wandering around. I'm just making sure he's not eating anything. I think we're good here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the perks of, of, of being home all the time now. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so I, I sort of like she she reframed a lot for me in how I was approaching this strange period that we have ahead. Mm-hmm. And it was all about looking for the good and looking like trying to find ways to be hopeful and finding the happiness and the joy. And before I got on that conversation on that call with her, I was not in a great place to say the least, uh, mentally. And I think that conversation like snapped me out of it. Um, and it got me to focus on like what, what I could control and what felt good. And, um, yeah, I think like fundamentally that's been the biggest takeaway that I've had from, that I've had from a guest. Um, I'm just thinking back to, Others. I mean, I had Shalane Flanagan on a couple of weeks ago, and I asked her to join 
uh, we had been trying to coordinate a uh, an interview for a couple of a couple of months i guess a year almost um i kept wanting to do it when i was in portland or when she was in boston but the timing wasn't working out and what she talked about and the reason that i wanted to have her on was um i noticed that she had just come back from injury or from oh, yeah. from um uh, knee surgery mm-hmm. and as a retired runner returning to to running with no races uh on her mind for the foreseeable future i wanted her perspective on like what do the rest of us do Mm -hmm. at a time like this and her guidance was really poignant and it was like the the week of the like the big shutdown of everything so everyone was like really swirling on where their heads were at and where to focus and boston had just been canceled and her guidance was essentially just like figure out your why and figure out why you're doing it. And I was like, this is great. You know, that's the whole point of my podcast to explore the why. So um, she was like, you need to figure out, you know, why, why you like to run, what brings you joy and just run a lot of miles and you don't need to be sharp. Just, you know, work on healthy volume and, um, consistency and she calls it stuffing stuffing the silo uh, so that when you're when you're ready to race you'll have a pretty big base yeah oh that's great i mean if it's okay with you maybe we can uh, take links to those episodes of yours put them in our show notes as well so people can uh, go straight to them but uh, those are you know they're great thoughts right i mean it is a confusing time right now it's it's difficult when people's races are canceled because we have like these fixtures of sort of milestones in our calendar to try to direct our year and all that's just kind of, you know, evaporated for a lot of people. And, and it is really difficult when you don't have direction, you don't have the proper perspective, but obviously that's what your show is all about is giving people, you know, that search for why they really run. Why do they really do the things? Why do we go run across the grand Canyon and back, you know, when it seems like monumental suffering to some people, it seems like, you know, incredible joy for others. And, you know, and that really is helpful in a time like this, I think. And I think your podcast definitely sends that message well. So um, I think everybody listening to the show right now should check him out. Uh, Go listen to Jonathan Levitt's podcast for the long run. We'll have all the links in the show notes, subscribe to him, follow him on social media and, um, and keep up with this guy because he's got some great things going on on his podcast. So Jonathan, listen, I'm really glad that you took time out of your schedule. I know that it is a chaotic time. And even though, you know, we have this work flexibility, then that's not exactly making everyone's lives easier right now. <laughs> right. Um, but I do appreciate you taking the time to, to come on this show and share your thoughts with all of our listeners today. So thanks so much. For sure. Thanks for having me on. All right, Jonathan. Hey, thanks, man. That was awesome. So course, um, thank you. Yeah, so I think I've got your links all right and stuff. Um, and I'll uh, we'll also have those links for Inside Tracker as well. Uh, that was really great. I'm glad you were able to include that in the discussion. Um, and you know, I think that'll probably send some people there as well. But um, very cool. So listen, thanks again. Uh, I'll send you all the links and everything uh, as soon as uh, if it's all up. And you can post those as well if you like. But we'll get all those to you also. Cool. Excited to share it. All right, Jonathan. Thanks. Hey, have a great day, okay? You too. All right. All right. Bye-bye.
Before you go, I just want to mention one other thing. If you have an overtraining injury, if you think you have an overtraining injury, if you've been recovering from an injury, the most important thing you can do is track your pain. I've written a couple of books on this. I've provided a lot of information on podcasts about this. But the one thing you really need to do more than any other is stay focused and do something specific every day to make sure that you understand whether or not what you're doing is making you better or worse. And that all starts with tracking your pain. So go to the show notes for this episode. Download the pain journal. I made it for you. It's the runner's pain journal. It shows you exactly what to track, what you should chart, and then you can use that to see whether or not your condition is actually really improving or if it's not. And if it's not, then you have to do something different. But if it is improving, that helps you understand how you can start ramping up your activity so you can keep running and get back to all of your running goals a whole lot faster. Go check it out. Go to the show notes, stockontherun.com. It's free and you can get it there now. If you have a question that you would like answered as a future edition of the Doc on the Run podcast, send it to me. And then make sure you join me in the next edition of the Doc on the Run podcast. Thanks again for listening.